The following conversation with film director Scott Balseric and harmonica player Adam Gusso about their film, Satan and Adam, originally aired October 12, 2018, on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Scott Balsera and Adam Gusso. Gusso. All right. Just, I figure I'll let you guys Balseric pronounce it. Yeah, you know, yeah. That way I won't get it wrong. Starsky. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome to uh, KPOV. Thank you. And to Thank Bend. You. I don't know. Have either of you ever been at, been to Bend before? I, I've never been to Oregon before, so oh, this right. is my 43rd state, I think. All right. Yeah. yeah. Scott? Never been to Bend, but I've been to Portland. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's uh, where a lot of people end up going first. So... Scott is the director of the film, Satin and Adam, and Adam is um, kind of the, a, a major, one of the two major players in the, in the film, along with, uh, with uh, another musician. Um, Adam is a musician, a harmonica player, and uh, the other um, main player in this, in this documentary is uh, a gentleman named Sterling McGee. Who went by the uh, name Mister Mister Satan when uh, when you met him, Adam, in mm-hmm. 1986? That's right. So this is a documentary about that. Actually, the story starts in 1986 and pretty much goes up to th- this year, right? I mean, uh, you know, right right up to the point when you have released the film. Pretty close, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. close. So, yeah. tell me about the film. Tell us about the film. Whoever wants to start. Well, I can give a little backstory, maybe the, the story that preceded Scott coming upon the scene, because Scott saw us, I think, in 1995. That was mm-hmm. nine years after I first... Uh, is 90, that? 92. 90, 91. 91? But the filming yeah, started in 95? Something. And the, the filming started in 95, so but I saw you in 91. saw us in 91. So in 1986, I, I, I had... I, was basically a, a former student, like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. I used to say I'm a former, a former student. I was a, dro- a grad school dropout, and I became a, a, a busker in New York uh, starting in 84, all straight through this fall of 85 and into 86. In the fall of 86, after coming back from Paris and Amsterdam and doing that for a couple of years, I basically decided I needed to clean up my act and, and, and get off the streets and, and stop being a busker. Um, and was dry, trying to find a, a faster way to work. I had a job in the South Bronx at Hostos Community College, and I was driving across 125th Street in Harlem. And I, and, I, and I heard this sound, and then I saw this guy. He was a guy that I'd seen a couple of years earlier in the Columbia neighborhood when I was still the grad student, and he had a trio at that point. At this point, he was by himself. He was older, African-American, salt-and-pepper beard, playing incredible guitar, playing one hi-hat cymbal, boom, chuck, boom, chuck, but with this incredible driving funk blues rhythm and then singing like, a, you know, a man possessed. And I got out of my car, I watched him for a while, and then I turned to somebody and I said, who's that? And he looked at me and I, and I wrote this later in my journal because I was so stunned. He said, oh, him? That's Satan. Everybody in Harlem knows Satan. That was the exact words because I, I said, you got to write that down. Satan? I said, Adam... <laughs> I, literally, day one, I said, you know, you, you ought to play with him, right? I was talking to myself. So we can say Satan and Adam played on the streets of Harlem. Day one. Came back the next day. I waited till he was on a break. He was fiddling with his hi-hat stand, and I said, hey, uh, uh, sir, uh, I really enjoy your music. Oh, thank you very much. I said, I'm a harmonica player. Do you think I could sit in? 
on a song or two, and he, and he looked up again. Couldn't tell what he was thinking, and I said, I, I won't embarrass you. And he said, you got your stuff with you? You got your instruments? I said, they're in the car. My mouse is in the car. He had a mouse, a little street amp, and he said, come on up. He had a big you know, way of talking like that. Come on up. And so I hooked my stuff up. I plugged in the mic and got my amp ready to go, and I test note, and then I looked up, and there was about 30 people just spread out across my field of view. Harlem thinking to themselves, we got a white boy here who's going to try to sit in with the guitar man. Let's, this should be fun. <laughs> and, and he said, I got a little thing here uh, called Mojo. Let's jam on this thing. And then he started, and I just held on for dear life. And it was, it's a song that shows up in the film. I have a B-flat harp, but it was, in the, it was on an A harp. <laughs> Right, and that, it's, it's that kind of groove. That's what I think of as that Mr. Satan groove because we played a lot of it. And we played a song for seven or eight minutes. When it was over, he goes, bang, and he knew how to end a song. He was the most incredible song-ending guy I ever met. And the place went nuts. The street went nuts. And he said, all right, everybody, we're going to housekeep the money bucket. I want you to come up here with your tips. We'll take whatever you got, food stamps, change. Come on up. We're going to take a little break. And that was the first day. We played together for four years on and off on the street. We opened for Buddy Guy in Central Park. We began to move on out. We played in a, a, a women's bar in Greenwich Village, and a woman came through the door one night who said, I love what you guys do. I represent Bo Diddley, Wilson Pickett, the village people. Her name was Margo Lewis. She said, I want to represent you guys. And the next thing I know, we're on the bus with Bo. And then we have an, an album that comes out. The blues DJs are going crazy. And... That's sort of where the story had gotten to. We were an, an, a, a regional to national blues act getting big press in Rolling Stone. We got a review in Rolling Stone. And, like, where does it go? Scott? <laughs> hey, yeah, so I saw them in, uh, like I said, like, 91, 92. We first broke out. Yeah, and they, they, they had just broken out from the st streets and were on this. Um, what I saw was a sort of an upward uh they were moving definitely out, out of the street and into not only New York, but they were becoming sort of an inter international act. Uh, I saw them because of uh, they were in U2's Rat on Hum, ironically. And um, a friend of mine loved that movie and was like, you got to those two guys that are in that movie are playing. And I'm like, what two guys? And uh, he says, you got to go see them. And I didn't actually want to go. Um, and he was like, he drugged me out. You got to see these guys. I'm a musician. So I, I, I uh, and I was working on a film. Uh, as an editor about a musician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. These guys come to Pittsburgh. So I go there, and um, uh, they, I was completely blown away. Two people making the biggest sound I've ever heard in, in my life. And as a musician, you really it, it resonates with you because uh, you could close your eyes, and it felt like there were literally five people on stage. And it was At just, that it point, was just he, two. Had, he had two hi-hat cymbals. He had a wooden board. And so anybody who thinks, oh, guitar harmonica, I, that reminds me of Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. No. No. <laughs> it's a totally more, different. More much, than that. This is like much Parliament Funkadelic, you know, yeah. meets. Well, uh, <laughs> Meet, you know, Robert, Robert, Robert Johnson, Johnson meets Parli yeah. Parliament Funkadelic going yeah. down, blowing down Broadway. I mean, it was literally otherworldly yeah. to me. To me, and I think a lot of people. The, the one thing that's interesting, it was uh, it was it was amped up and big. It wasn't just sort of like the acoustic blues, you know. And it was it was very funky, which is also mm -hmm. a little a little rare in the straight up blues world. And then you, you, I would close my eyes, and 
and think there were five people playing on stage. And also, you, you, you would open up your eyes and turn, and you would see people dancing, which is really weird. Who danced? Who dances to a blues act? I mean, with, with a just two, with, with, like with, with, yeah, a blues yeah, duo. True. No one dances to that's a blues true. duo. And these people were literally dancing, and the, and the floor was crowded. It wasn't like, and I was, I just, it, it didn't really, yeah. It was, and it, where was that? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where oh, I'm from. Oh, it was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, okay. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All right, so you guys were touring. We were touring. Yeah, yeah. Little, yeah. around at least, the, the, decade, least the, I think. the Midwest and the, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the East. and yeah. yeah, east of the east of the Mississippi, right. and then occasional festivals, other places. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, Scott, were you already a filmmaker? Yes. At the, at the time, I was actually editing a film. Um, I, I've been an editor for years. This is my first as a, a director. And so I was editing this movie about a street musician in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which actually went on to win the Student Academy Award, which is the award that every student covets, you know. Um, and so when I saw these guys, um, I was like, this could be uh, the, the, the next movie. And I, of course, wanted to direct and so um, s- embarked upon this process. That And so you, too, because they did do a film that came out with the album there there you are briefly in that film. we are briefly in it it was it was actually our first summer yeah 30 39 45 yeah. uh a, a song called uh, freedom for my people right that we had been playing on the street our first summer summer of 87 so the film comes out in kind of in late 88 um this is a different key but Not very atypical for what we did, but it was a kind of anthem with incredibly um, just beautiful lyrics that that Sterling came up with. Um, There's one other thing, by the way, and in a sense this is where the film starts, but it's something that I should say. The other thing that characterized our time on the streets, those four years, um, we were obviously an interracial act or a salt and pepper act on the streets of Harlem. So as you know, between 86 and 91, New York was a place... The Koch years. Koch years, mm-hmm. and so you had Howard Beach, you had, right. uh, at right. least one or two black men, they were sort of chased across a h- highway and one was killed. And Literally chased out of a uh, white a, neighborhood. Like a pizzeria. P- p- pizzeria. A pizzeria. Actually, right? one, he was killed. So, yeah. Yeah. so we had that. We had Howard Beach. Yusef Hawkins was killed in Bensonhurst. Right. Again, it was a black Italian thing. Then you had do the right thing. Right. The one and only time I got seriously hassled, and we talk about this in the in the documentary, was about six weeks after Do the Right Thing came out, hmm. when two guys came up and it, and they made it clear, like, how can a white guy come into our neighborhood and not get hurt? Imagine how you'd feel if somebody said, ask that que- that rhetorical question, right? right? And not get hurt when black guys are getting killed in in white neighborhoods, and and all of that came out, and you know, Spike Lee really captured. I love that movie because right. it reminds me of those hot summers and everybody getting in each other's faces yeah yeah and uh and yeah. we were and then of course crown heights which which happened when that riot right. happened blacks and jews that was when we were just out of the country it was like we finally had begun to make it up and out right. but it was a period of time in, in which we were presenting a public image in fact i have to tell there's a there's somebody who shows up in the documentary peter noel who's a caribbean american he was a, a progressive journalist very well known it was a village voice writer and i used to read him with admiration but he was he was almost like almost agitating for stuff to happen um he 
is a talking head in this film, but he said, Adam, he said, you know, I used to work in the new, in, in the Amsterdam News right around the corner from where you guys were playing. I would see you out there, he goes, and I would talk with my friends in the new Black Panthers. And they were not happy about you. He goes, I can't believe they didn't take you out. <laughs> like, well, I'd, I'm yeah. glad I didn't know but, that they were even thinking about that. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, indeed, the, the 80s and during what I call so, the yeah. Koch years and, and, and basically because I believe the mayor, Ed Koch, didn't, didn't – let's just say – to, it would be at, at the very least he didn't help matters any when it came to uh, racial divisions in that in, in that city, and of course now we're and then we're, Dinkins of course won. I remember right. the feeling in Harlem when in Dinkins 88 won. Or 89, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you had these horrible. You had uh, Bob Grant, these, you know, the, the talk show guys, the right wing talk show guys, right. calling him the men's room attendant. That was to right. Uh, we have a black mayor for the first time, and you're going right. to call him a men's yeah, room. Yeah, well, and I mean, we that, had, and there was that was New York, and there was Donald Trump. Uh, Doing <laughs> doing stuff way back then uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the Central Park yeah. stuff, you know, full mm-hmm. page ads and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'm here in the studio with the director of Satan and Adam, Scott Balsarek, and Adam Gusso. Gusso, I'm sorry. Um, and Adam is a, the harmonica player that you've been hearing here, great harmonica, and one of the two major people in the film Satan and Adam. So the first film, the, so the U2, uh, that was really the first time that you guys were on film? Would that be? Almost, yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say probably is. There were occasionally people would stop by like news, you know, local news yeah, guys yeah, would yeah. come. But it's, yeah, that, 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 I mean, that was something that was that international. Had a, right. Uh, and you saw that yeah. and you were a film editor. And so when did you actually start, uh, Scott, when did you actually start when, when did the idea, I guess, of like, well, I'm going to make a movie? You said you had done one movie about a, about a musician in Pittsburgh, but tell us a little bit about how that evolved. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> once I saw these guys, I think right there, then and there, I, I thought that it could be a film. I didn't know what, exactly what the film is, but the, the germination of that idea definitely was in that club in Pittsburgh in 19... 19- 91, 92, but it, uh, it took me a while. I moved to Los Angeles to go to film school at the American Film Institute. At that time, um, started to uh, try to raise money for it. And uh, at the time, you can get a grant. These days, it's hard. It's harder to get a grant. But uh, we we were able to get a grant. I think because of winning the Student Academy Award to uh, start this uh, project, as it was so similar. And at the time, I didn't know exactly what the film would would be. I think pithily I thought that it was an allegory for American music, and I started from there. But uh, I think ch- just tracking these guys, I, I, they were on their way up, and I thought, um, how could two guys from completely different worlds uh, start in the street of Harlem and end up in the international space? Um, so that was a film. I didn't know what I was going to get, um, but I, I started on that premise. Yeah, and obviously, if, if for those if those of you who get an opportunity to see the film, you'll see that it goes in a place that no, none of you, neither of you, would have okay. known that it was. I mean, no. obviously, you know, you're no. tracking it as as it goes because at a certain point, Adam, um, Mr. Satan disappeared, and I don't know what what year was. was so that? 1998. Basically, we we were on the streets from 86. What, what year to was 90. it again? 1998. 1998. Okay. So yeah. So from 91 to 98, we were basically this part-time touring act. Right. You know, playing playing festivals, all the big festivals, and stuff. And at a certain point, he moved from Harlem. He used to live on 116th and uh, over on the just below Morningside Park. Um, he moved down to Virginia. So he was 
350, 400 miles away, and yet we continued our weekend warrior thing. Um, and imagine this also. At that point, I had gone back to graduate school. I was an English, grad, English PhD student, a doctoral student at Princeton, which is where I'd been an undergrad. So I'm, this, I'm a, the overeducated blues guy trying to keep the touring career going, going off on tour. And he's driving up 400 miles for the weekend. Then we'd go to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or we'd go to Boston, or we'd go to Syracuse, play our gigs, come back. He would sleep in with his wife. His wife, Miss Macy, is a part <coughs> of the story, too. He'd sleep in his car on the same block where he used to live in Harlem and then drive 400 miles in the morning back down. A kind of unsustainable, I mean, I think that right. as you start to age, that kind of stuff was hard enough for me. It really wore on him. And at a certain point, his father died. The thing about Mr. Satan, and by the way, I called him Mr. Satan from, well, actually, when I first met him, everybody was calling him Satan. I do wonder sometimes whether the Mr. got added when it was, he was calling me Mr. Adam. And, I, and then I call him Mr. Satan, and I think the Mr. might have, there might have been a thing. But anyway, he was Mr. Satan for as long as I knew him, and I never would have thought of calling him anything else from 1986 to 1998. On the road, meet the sound man at the club. Hey, sound man. Mom, Adam, this is Mr. Satan. Hey, Mr. Satan. That was the world we lived in. Was an, there was a surreal element. Um, he was a street prophet, so that there are people who would say he's crazy, and in the film, some people would talk that kind way. Kind of allude to that, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, was a, he, he was prophetic and, um, and incredibly powerful and incredibly giving to the people on the street. But at a certain point when his father died, it became very hard for him, I think, to sustain the I am Satan, the I am Mr. Satan, because he's seeing somebody who was powerful and above him kind of die. And I think it freaked him out, honestly. And... and and he ended up having a nervous breakdown, which is... Did you know that at the time? I, no, I did not. And that the film is very good at... I had no idea what had happened. Yeah, and so through all of this, uh, Scott, you're continuing to film. Is that correct? I mean, you're working on a, you're I, working on a project. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I uh, got... We had received grant money, and so, right. well, you know, this is a real thing, you know. And uh, so I shot, started in 95, and as, as you know, in 98, he disappeared. So Yeah, so all of a sudden, you're, one of your two primary people is gone. Yes. And so it was like, uh, do I turn this into a short documentary? Um, where is this going to go? And so at that point, it became like a, sort of a rolling of the dice. And um, I, uh, I think for one year, I didn't do anything. I was kind of stunned by the whole thing. And then after a while, I started um, – Google was becoming a, 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 a more a robust, let's put it that way. Right. And uh, at one point, I noticed that you were able to find people like you would in the you know white pages. Right. Matter of fact, I think it was called white pages, but it was on Google or something. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. And uh, I decided to just cold call every McGee. He's originally – he's a Mississippi-born artist. And I, I – decided to cold call every McGee that would come up on this white pages on, on Google. And I got a lot of hangups and I got a lot of, I don't know who, you, who you're talking about. I don't know who you are and the, why are you calling me? But I did eventually land on a cousin of Sterling. Wow. Joshua? Did you get Joshua, Joshua McGee? In, in Mount, in Mount yeah. And I'll never forget when I picked the picked up the well, when I called him and picked up the phone he he was like oh that's Joshua knows where he is and he put me on hold which is really just putting the phone on on the table and I can hear the whole activity in the house and that that phone sat there 
I'm not kidding. That phone sat there for about five or ten minutes. He was a farm. I mean, Joshua yeah. they was were like, like a, a farmer, so he's right. probably out there putting the tractor yeah. away. And I remember hearing exactly. Uh, I, th- I remember hearing someone yelling out into like I, I would assume as a field <laughs> for Joshua, and it took literally took five to ten minutes, and. He gets on and he just says two words. Yeah, he's in Florida. And <laughs> he gave me a phone number. Wow. And ironically, wow, I didn't even it was realize. weird that, that, yeah. that uh, you know, we, Adam and I called each other. We were like, he's disappeared. He's, I don't know what to do. And I, I just was like, I'll just do a little bit of investigation. And so I that was you, Adam, you hadn't, you had lost track of well, him totally I at realized, that point. no, because I did talk with a psychiatrist actually at the, at the hospital that he was at. I'm not going to talk about the content of that. But I, that's how I have some of the insights that I have. Um, and, and but there was I, a point where he just fell off. I actually yeah. played with one gig with him, out-of-time gig, uh, in Virginia in 1999. So there was one, and he was still he still pretty much had his powers. Then he disappeared. Yeah. And we had a booking agent. Think about this. Imagine you're a blues booking agent. She was a really good agent, Kathleen Finnegan. And she, she had, and I was happy to have her. We finally had, we were back with a good agent. She'd gotten us three, four, five festivals for the summer, and then this happened. And she had to scrub them. She had basically put her whole agency at risk. I mean, we were <laughs> the commissions on these big gigs. She was sending us overseas and stuff. She basically dropped out of the agency business. Broke wow. her heart. Yeah. I said, "What could I do?" Right. I tried to. What I did is I, I I found a couple of guitar playing friends of mine, and we fulfilled a couple of the gigs. Uh, and then that was it. Then I didn't know where he was. And eventually Scott found him. And then I went down in March of 2000. And I was going to see a friend and then drive, see a friend in, in, in the Orlando area and then drive across to the Tampa area where he was. And I had a heart attack. I, I was playing on stage with a guitar, uh, harmonica playing friend of mine. And I had started to smoke at that point, And it was, a, it was just a mess. I was in the hospital briefly. And, and so I missed that. So I think 2002... Yeah. I finally, it's like two years went by, and I finally went down, and Scott captured that, my first sort of reunion with him, in which yeah, it's on the his, film. Teeth are mm-hmm. out, his teeth are out of his head, and he can, he can, barely, can barely pick up a pick. He so, has lost everything. So that's 2002. That's still right. a long time ago, really, yeah. I mean, in the life of anyone, you know, and particularly someone at his age. So you picked up the film at that point? I mean, you, you, obviously you filmed this reunion but I, I did i picked up the film again in it was like 99 2000 um because uh i talked to sterling i called him as i guess i got the phone number That's right and um you know sterling and i and adam i think one thing we share is that we're, we're all we're all musicians and as you know musicians they have their own way of communicating um in, in some ways and i feel like uh that uh sterling he invited me down I didn't want to, you know, I knew he was going through some issues, but, but he was kind enough to invite me down. And so, you know, before he, uh, we find him in a, a nursing home, we, uh, I went down there and, and uh, with a very small crew and just sh- shot his life and just sort of tried to, you know, keep up with him. Right. You know, and, and you know, I, I respected that. I mean, he, he let me into his life. I don't. No, a lot of people would not wouldn't do that. I don't, right. I don't think they would, would, right. would do that. So, particularly at that stage in his life, because mm-hmm. he was really the. Uh, and I don't want to go too, too into too much. I want people to see this film, but right. mm-hmm. but but there was. I mean, he basically, when you reconnected with him on film, he, in the film, he's essentially not really able to perform anymore. He couldn't he's, play really, but right. he got even worse. I think when he got into that nursing home, it was even worse. They over medicated him. Yeah. No question. He, yeah. Yeah. He, he was yeah. just. 
these are sort of state-run kind of right. situations. But right. he's better, right. uh, although recently, just very recently, he had a, 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 a little health challenge that resulted in us maybe not playing a gig that we're going to play in the spring. Um, we played as recently as uh, uh, when we were at the Tribeca Film Festival back in April. Oh. He, and I, he and I played. Um, he's, uh, you know, he never got back the guitar playing ability. But he was able. But uh, he could just sort of strum. But he he's still a great blues singer. Mm-hmm. Um, that energy, I think, is, is still there. Fact, yeah, and you can see that in the you can see that in the film. It's what's really kind of moving in the film. Really, is the way that you're able to uh, document his kind of coming out of where he, where he was when you first mm-hmm. met him, and, you know, and, and how he was able to. You know, just kind of was reborn in a sense as as a performer to the ve- to the best of his ability. Obviously, not not playing at the level necessarily that you, when you first saw him on the street and when when he and Adam were on the street. But then everybody ages and everybody's music yeah. their changes, ability changes. changes, changes you know? yeah, so so. it's a great film. I had an opportunity to watch it yesterday. It was a lot of fun to watch. It was really moving. It's a great odyssey of of you know the, the story of you two of you Adam and and uh, and Satan coming 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 together losing one another coming back together. It's a great great story, and I really appreciate that that uh, that you were able to stick it out through all of this and really make this happen because obviously it was Thanks. going. You had no idea where it was going to go. I think that's a larger one of the larger themes amongst all, all of us filmmaker and subject is that we all kind of rolled the dice in the world and stuck it out you know and that definitely emerges as one of the themes of the film right absolutely yeah so 23 years 23 what who's ever heard of a music documentary that has footage taken over 23 years or any 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 documentary (laughs) (laughs) really so anything more that 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 either of you want to want to add i want to just play a little music for people so they'll know what we sounded like on the streets one song we used to do was the herbie hancock tune that was also big in east harlem watermelon man Street sound. There you go. Yeah, Adam. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to ask you again. Gusso. 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 I'm so sorry. (laughs) Adam Gusso and Scott Palsarek. Thanks so much, both of you, director and uh, one of the main subjects of the film, Satan and Adam. Thanks a lot, guys, for coming in. I really, really appreciate. Thanks for making the space. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to 
kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.